I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fourth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the rise of pseudoscience, the ethics of spying, the future of liberalism, the trustworthiness of science, the meaning of the soul, the origins of religion, and the reason why we're in this whole global mess in the first place. Even before the recent invasion of Ukraine, in its fifth week as we record this episode, many people had a sense that the 21st century wasn't really going according to plan. Back in the mid-90s, there was a heady sense of optimism as first the Cold War and then apartheid ended with vastly less bloodshed than had been feared. Countries everywhere seemed to be liberalising and democratising. 30 years on the picture looks altogether less rosy. Democracy is in retreat in the face of authoritarianism. A decade of Western growth was lost to greedy banking practices and austerity. Domestic inequality has widened to levels unseen in living memory, and that's without factoring in religious extremism, a global pandemic, climate change, and, of course, a war in Ukraine. All of which may leave us pondering... How did we get into this mess? Helen Thompson is Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge and has research interests in the economy of energy and the long history of the democratic, economic and geopolitical disruptions of our time. Her new book brings this expertise to bear on our current woes and is called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Helen Welcome to Reading Our Times. Pleasure to be here, Nick. You remark in the conclusion of your book that the events of 2016, meaning Trump and Brexit, encouraged much short-term political analysis, but that really both were simply, quote, part of stories that have been playing out over decades and that the fault lines were visible from at least the mid-2000s. I want to see if we can trace some of those fault lines in our conversation from the hairline cracks that they once were through to the earthquakes that they are today. And I want to start with energy because that's where your book starts. Can you take us back to the post-war era and tell us how energy policy shaped the world then? Yeah, the first thing I think to say about the era after the Second World War was that the world's largest oil producer was the United States. And the United States was largely domestically self-sufficient. But American presidents had a significant worry about the medium to long-term future. And they had no interest in returning to the world of the 1920s, in which European countries were importing significant amounts of oil, not only from the United States, but from other countries in the Western Hemisphere, particularly Venezuela and Mexico. Neither, once the Cold War started, let's say by 1947, did the Truman administration want the European countries continuing to import oil as they had done in the latter part of the 1920s and the first part of the 1930s from the Soviet Union. So that meant that Western European countries were supposed to import oil from the Middle East. And there were two European imperial powers in the Middle East, Britain and France, and it was Britain that was supposed to be the state that was going to provide energy security for West European countries. So the logic of this was, in the final instance, the United States was willing to allow exports to Western Europe in emergency, but it didn't want that as a basic 
relationship in energy terms between Western Europe and the United States. So in some sense, the first major crisis of the post-war era in this respect comes at Suez in 1956, because the British, with the French and the Israelis, do what they're supposed to do, which is to try to act as a guarantor of Western European oil interests by taking military action against Egypt after the Egyptian president has ordered the nationalisation of the company that ran the Suez Canal, through which about 70% of the oil imports into Western Europe came. And President Eisenhower's response is, we don't want you acting like imperialists. Don't you understand the world's moved on? Um, This is the age of nationalism and the importance of the independence, the future independence of the smaller Arab states, and obviously some of them already are. The large ones already are independent. And this is a moment that causes absolute horror in many ways, in not just London and in Paris, but in Bonn, in the West German capital too, because what are they supposed to do in a world in which they are dependent on imports from oil in the Middle East? If the country that's told them in some sense to be dependent on this oil then says you can't act militarily to protect those interests. Mm. At what point does America stop being self-sufficient and what impact does that have? Yeah, I mean, the Americans have always been ported some oil, but the crucial turning point here is 1970, because in 1970, US oil production reaches a peak. It will not reach again until the shale oil boom of the middle of the 2010s. And from that moment, the United States is on a, a pretty rapid trajectory to becoming the world's largest oil importer. So it's going to move from being the world's largest oil producer to being the world's largest oil importer. And now it has its own interest, like the West European countries had and still have in many respects, in importing oil from the the Middle East. And it arrives that moment for the Americans at the time, pretty much exactly the same time, as the British are finding that carrying on an empire in the Middle East is far too difficult. So the British government had announced at the end of the 60s that it would be withdrawing from what was called East of Suez. That finally happened in 1971. And if we think of that as a end of empire moment, the corollary of it is in the oil producing Arab world in particular, a rise of energy nationalism and of saying, look, we don't want these Western companies Mm. deciding how much oil gets produced out of our country and what the prices are. We want to control this for ourselves. That's what it means to be an independent state to have sovereignty, to be able to to do that. So all these things are happening at the same time. And then just to make matters even more complicated, the Arab states attack Israel in 1973 and realise that oil can be used as a geopolitical weapon. So pretty much the entire energy setup from the immediate period after the Second World War comes crashing down in the 1970s. And the shock to oil prices that occurs in the wake of 1973 has enormous ramifications, doesn't it, on geopolitics, but also domestic politics in the West? Absolutely. It changes fundamentally the geopolitical balance of power in the world. It makes the Middle East much more important, but it also makes some individual Middle Eastern states, in particular Saudi Arabia and Iran, extremely consequential. And where Iran's concerned that's the context in which the Iranian revolution takes place, the overthrow of the Shah's regime Mm. at the end of the 70s, and that's another energy shock. And then in Western democracies, you have inflation, largely caused by the oil price rises. That produces a much 
sharper set of distributional conflicts in Western democracies than has been there in the 50s and the 60s. Mm. And in the United States, you have the most bitter conflicts, I would say, in domestic politics, because you still have a significant oil industry in, in the United States. And the interest of those oil producers is now in having prices rise so that they can invest in production that's a lot more expensive and requires much higher levels of capital expenditure. And then you have the oil consuming states in the United States, particularly New England, where the winters are very cold, where the concern is to have as much cheap energy as possible. And then you have a president in Jimmy Carter who says, look, actually, we need to try and make ourselves energy independent again. And we don't want to be constrained by what's happening in the Middle East. But in order to do that, at least in the short to medium term, is we need to make sacrifices. We need to engage in energy conservation. Carter put solar panels on the White House. Reagan had them removed, didn't yeah, he, subsequently? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. one of the first things Reagan did. Uh, <laughs> and there's a big reaction, not just from the right, but there's a reaction in the left of the Democratic Party about Carter's attitude towards energy. The other important thing that happens from the late 1970s is China mm. begins to join the world economy. It's, at the time, relatively small, but it begins begins to grow at an astonishingly rapid pace. And that has significant implications on energy geopolitics as well, doesn't it? It does. I think that the China story is really interesting here. To begin with, if you look at it in terms of the impact on the rest of the world economy, China's energy demand, it's not really there. There are two reasons, I think, for that. The first of them is, is that China's economic development is very coal-centric, that was the usual development model. You got to be, in some sense, a developed country when you were using more oil and less coal. And coal wasn't the issue in the 1970s. Mm. But China was domestically self-sufficient in oil production until around 1993. If we skip on then to the middle of the 90s, you can't really see the impact of China's becoming an oil importer immediately. But once China's economic development and economic growth really accelerates around the point in which China joins the World Trade Organization. Which is in, the end of the 90s? In, no, 2001. 2001. This normalisation of relation, trade relations with the US in 2000 and then joins in 2001. And China's demand for oil really starts accelerating with that economic growth. Then there's a big problem because this is a point in which the supply side is quite constrained for a set of differing reasons in, in different oil producing countries. It's only really Russia that has clear capacity to mm. increase oil through that period of time and indeed does so. So you have by 2005, the supply side pretty much stagnated whilst mm. this big demand side shock is going on in China and it leads between 2005 to the middle of 2008 into extraordinarily high oil prices, higher both in absolute terms and in inflation adjusted terms than were seen in the 1970s. So $150 a barrel of oil yeah. by the middle of 2008. So it's not only a China story, it's a supply side constraint story as well. But China is, is one half of a very important story here with profound consequences, I think, for what happens in 2007, 2008. To what extent do you think that the Gulf War, the first Gulf War and then the Iraq War, were wars for oil, as some people have claimed? I think the first Gulf War, there's absolutely no question about why it was that the George Bush senior administration, the Americans' allies, thought that Western oil interests were at stake because 
in invading Kuwait, Saddam Hussein, control of the Kuwaiti oil fields, and that was unacceptable. If we move to the second one, I think this is harder, in part because obviously the public justification of the war was about weapons of mass destruction and to some extent, at least in the United States, about regime change for exporting democracy reasons. But I, I think that there is a clear energy context to it which is that there's a supply-side problem with oil in the early 2000s, as I was saying a few mm. minutes ago. And one of the problems arises is because three oil-producing regimes, Iran, Iraq and Libya, are under American-led sanctions at that time and having their export of oil restricted. And if you look at what Dick Cheney, Bush's vice president, is saying in 2001, when he first comes into office, he sets up this energy task force. It's pretty clear that sanctions have got to be removed from at least one of these countries if there isn't going to be a serious oil supply mm. problem. And I think that it's fair to say that at least a motive yes. for the Iraq war is to remove Saddam Hussein from power and put in place a Western-friendly government that will allow not only for the sanctions to be removed, but allow for Iraq's reserves to be developed in a much more efficient way than had hitherto been the case. Mm. Now, one of the most important changes in recent years is the discovery and the production of shale oil and gas in the US, which has made America the biggest energy producer mm. in the world. But you write at one point that geopolitically, the world has become more unstable in the last 10 years because of this. And that slightly surprised me because I would have thought the idea that a greater level of American energy self-sufficiency would remove one of these fault lines and make the world slightly more stable. Why is that not the case? I think there are three different reasons here, Nick. If we look on the oil side, the reason why America's return as the world's largest oil producer is so disruptive was because it was so disruptive to the US-Saudi relationship. So you know, the Saudis had got used to a certain kind of dependency of Washington on Saudi Arabia in this context. And then the United States has become a competitor. And one of the lessons that Obama takes from all this, I mean, this meaning the shale oil boom in the United States, is that that can be used to reach a settlement with Iran. That mm -hmm. Because now it will be possible to have sanctions that really hurt Iran's oil exports rather than just moderately hurt them. It would be possible to bring Iran to the negotiating table. The Iran nuclear deal comes out of that. But the Saudis are bitterly opposed to the Iran nuclear deal. They think it's too generous to Iran. Um, so they're extraordinarily annoyed with the Americans on both counts um, right. of competition for Saudi Arabia in oil markets, plus the Iran nuclear deal. The second reason then, if we turn to gas, is that what the US shale gas boom does, which is bigger really than the shale oil boom, is is it means that Russia has a competitor for European gas markets. You know, it's used basically to having European gas markets largely to itself. And now the United States can sell gas. And there are some European countries like Poland and the Baltic Republics that think that this is literally manna from heaven um, because <laughs> that they can break their dependency on, on Russia, which they've energy dependency, which they've gas dependency, which they're very uncomfortable about. I think the third part where it's disruptive is that the United States no longer needs the Middle East in the same way. And yet it's in a position where its navy is essentially providing energy security for everybody 
in terms of oil coming out of the Persian Gulf. And a lot of that oil is now going to Asia, yeah. China and Japan, to some extent India as well. So if you took Obama's logic of, well, we can pull out of the Middle East and put it to its complete logical conclusion, which is OK, we can pull out of the Persian Gulf, then the upshot would be, OK, some power is going to take responsibility for energy security in the Persian Gulf. Mm. Is that going to be China? Is that what the United States really wants? Because that is where this energy logic has now gone. If China's become the part of the world that is most dependent upon oil coming out of the Persian Gulf, you've moved from Britain being responsible for that because it had clear energy interest there. You move on to the United States doing that because it is, from the 70s at least, clear energy interest there. Is it then going to be, it's China that's responsible for mm. that? But if you're the Americans, you don't really, I think, want Chinese Navy being in a dominant position in the Persian Gulf. So in that sense, it just becomes, in a way, another issue, another problem, because the United States has to provide naval energy security for its strategic rival and protecting imports it doesn't really need any longer. But the alternative is worse. Before we leave energy, we must also, of course, bring in Russia and Ukraine here. Energy is obviously absolutely fundamental, as you've said, to Russia's economy and security. Do you think, we should also say we're speaking exactly one month into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do you think we would have seen that invasion if the West had had a radically different energy policy over the years, if so many European countries hadn't been so dependent on Russian gas? I think this is really it's a really hard counterfactual to run. Right from the beginning of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Russia had a problem in terms of the independent states to its west. So Ukraine, Belarus, Moldavia, particularly Ukraine, given the internal politics of Ukraine and Russia's historic relationship with Ukraine, because these pipelines were running through Ukraine. So we see governments during the Yeltsin era really trying to grapple with this problem about what do you do when your major exports require the transit consent of mm. states with which you have difficult, or particularly a state with which you have a difficult relationship. And the answer, and again, it begins in the Yeltsin era, it's not just about Putin, is, is well, you build new pipelines. If you can't persuade the Ukrainians to cooperate with you on good financial terms, you build new pipelines that bypass them. Mm. And in order to do that, there was one that was agreed in the 90s that basically was a new land pipeline that went through Belarus, but not through Ukraine. And then you start moving under the seas. So you go under the Black Sea first, take it into Turkey, and then you go under the Baltic Sea, take it into Germany directly. And these moves weaken Ukraine. Yes. So there isn't any way around that. So I think then what we would have to say is that all this did weaken Ukraine's position. It did make it easier for... Russia to put a lot of pressure on Ukraine at various points, but it's not so clear on the basic dependency what the alternatives mm. were without a completely different approach to energy. The second theme of your book is economics and there are many fault lines we could explore but there's one in particular i want to ask you about which is chimerica 
Which is this portmanteau term that Niall Ferguson coined 10 or 15 years ago. Tell us what Chimerica is and where the fault line is there. Yeah, what we can see, I think, from really from the literal turn of the, the century, from the point in which trade relations between the United States and China were put on a permanently normal basis, is that not only is there a huge growth of Chinese exports into the American market, but there's a great deal of American investment, including by some big American companies, into productive capacity in China and essentially moving manufacturing jobs from the United States to China. I mean, Apple is a good example you know, mm. like of that, a company that first part of the 90s is kind of like boasting about everything being made in America. And then by the time you know the iPhone's taking off in 2007, most of the parts of it are being manufactured in China. As the trade and investment relationship is growing, China is also proving quite willing to buy vast amounts of US Treasury bonds. So China became a structural creditor, I would say, to the United States in the mid-2000 period. And just, it, to, just to intervene, and the belief there is that that is a, a legitimate and sensible long-term solution for America because the more China integrates into the global economy, the more it's likely to democratise and to become a, a stable political partner. Is that right? I think, Nick, this is a really open question as to what was actually believed in Washington. How much of it was an illusion, i.e. the argument that you've just, the liberal one really, economic interdependence will make the world a more peaceful place. There won't be geopolitical strategic rivalry between the United States and China. And at best, it will push China on the path to democracy because that's where economic development leads. I wonder how much they really believe that mm. in Washington. I think that it was a, a useful argument, though, because it took the sting out of the counter-argument to integrating China in that way, which was to say that, look, this has got significant distributional costs because the people who are benefiting from it are you know, the big American companies, the corporate mm. executives with their shares and their big salaries, and the people who are losing from it are those employed in the American manufacturing yes. sector. And what we see in the early 2000s, you know, is a quite significant job loss, not only in terms of direct transfer of manufacturing jobs, factory jobs out of the United States to China, but in terms of the impact on those towns, often there were towns in the Midwest, where that manufacturing capacity took place in terms of the local economy around that as well. Mm. And the result is it's, it's left two countries in a state of simultaneously being mutually highly interconnected and interdependent, but politically extremely fractious, right? Yeah, and I think that if we skip on to the 2016 US presidential election, Donald Trump is very keen on revisiting that moment. And he very much casts it in the second way of looking at it, mm. which was to say that, look, in some sense, in his terms, I'm not accepting his terms here, really, but yes. the American elite sold American workers out and that he was standing up for American workers and saying, this is enough. I mean, the interesting thing is, though, that the job losses had really all taken place more than 10 years before Trump is using them as a political weapon. Mm. And I think, in part, the reason why the confront China rhetoric that Trump 
adopts is so effective for him isn't because of what happened in the early 2000s with these job losses. It's because in 2015, China's up in the ante with this strategy made in China 2025, having an ambition, strategic ambition to turn China into the high-tech manufacturing power. And that's what really sends alarm bells ringing in Washington, because that very obviously has geopolitical security implications. Mm. I hesitate to ask about the economic fault lines through the European Union, because Mm. there are just so many and they're so deep. Let me focus our discussion on Europe in this instance in one particular question. Do you think those economic fault lines are so deep as to ultimately prove fatal to the European Union? No, I don't actually. Partly because at the centre of that is the Eurozone and the relationship between the Eurozone and the non-members of the Eurozone within the European Union. Mm -hmm. If you look at that aspect of it, that fault line between members and non-members, the biggest one was around the United Kingdom. And that fault line played its significant part in the United Kingdom's exit, in my view, from the European Union. I think What we can see with the Eurozone within itself is that it's very difficult for the Eurozone to deal with the problems that it has and the fault lines within it. In fact, I'd say it's impossible to undo the Eurozone outside of a complete collapse because leaving the Eurozone would mean being left with far worse difficulties. Mm. And we can see that in the way in which the Greek crisis played out in 2015, which was really an attempt led by the then German finance minister, Wolfgang Schirbel to expel Greece from the, the Eurozone and the Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras was willing to endure immense humiliation for Greece just to ensure that that yes. didn't happen because the problems of being left with your own national currency and then a load of debt denominated in euros are just too horrific for uh, any European state to contemplate. So although I think the fault lines run deep through the Eurozone, I think the muddle through will continue to be what will ensue. Mm. Your final theme is around democracy, and there you take the story a bit further back, in one sense, to the origins of politics in a long-standing tension between what you call aristocratic politics and democratic politics. And in a way, that was visible in the Brexit vote, or rather what happened after the Brexit vote and the two or three years of wrangling there was between popular opinion and parliamentary democracy in the UK. Can you tell me where you see that particular fault line between aristocratic politics and democratic politics Mm. most vividly today? I think we can see it most clearly in the United States because you have politicians on the left of the Democratic Party like Bernie Sanders who quite openly describe American supposedly democratic politics as oligarchic and that they, Mm. they do so because of the place of money in American elections and the amount of money that billionaires can spend to try to put the candidates whom they support into office. And I think what we can see probably since 2016 and Sanders' challenge for the Democratic nomination in particular, but in some ways you can cast Trump in part in these terms, I think, as well, is a a Democratic reaction against that and saying this isn't what democracy is, is supposed to be like. I think the tension where it manifests in Europe is somewhat different and it's in the Eurozone in particular. And there it's not about aristocratic excess in the sense of the influence of the very rich 
in democratic politics. It's aristocratic excess in terms of the technocrats who are necessary to make decisions in order to deal with the debt problems that Eurozone governments have. And here, the really significant case, I think, is Italy, because in Italy, we can see really since 2011, so for a decade now, it's been very difficult for elections to determine who exercises power in Mm. Italy. You have an election and then at a certain point, there's a crisis, usually an economic crisis or an economic crisis of some kind or another. And then the Italian president ends up appointing a technocratic prime minister. And we've reached, in some sense, the, the logical conclusion of all that with the present Italian prime minister, who you know, who is the former president of the European Central Bank. Mm. So I think that there's two very different ways in which the problem of aristocratic excess and supposedly democratic politics is playing out at the moment. Yeah. I want, in our closing minutes together, to draw some of these strands together. Your book is subtitled Hard Times for the 21st Century. I want to ask, how far do you think they're also extraordinary times? Mm. Or are we actually just resuming history? Do we occasionally fall into these lulls, such as the Les Trente Glorieuses, the 20, 30 years after the Second World War and then the 1990s, when actually we kid ourselves that history is stabilising and we are entering a new era, when in actual fact they are the anomalies and what we're experiencing at the moment is history as normal. I largely think that, with a big caveat that I will come to, I think that if we look back at those two periods of considerable optimism that you'd mentioned, each of them can be cast somewhat differently. If we take the post-war era, the 30 glorious years, as you said, the French are keen on calling it, most people when they look back on that in a nostalgic sense, I think, in Europe. I don't want to think, OK, that actually part of that was the British holding on to their empire in the Middle East <laughs> to ensure that the oil supply to Western Europe wasn't threatened. So I think that underneath these periods of apparent order, actually there are pretty clear fractures and sometimes some things that, in fact, often perhaps some things that are pretty unpalatable And in the 90s, it's really the mid-90s, even that, because, I mean, the first part of the 90s is the Balkan wars. In terms of the European projects, we're going to use that language, it runs into huge problems in 1993 when the exchange rate mechanism rules have to be suspended. It looks for a while like monetary union can't possibly take place. So I think even in the interludes, there's more, if you like, disorder going on than can seem. But I agree with you, Nick, in the sense that I think that most of the time, history is much more like what we're going through now than it is like the last few years of the 90s. Mm. The big caveat I would put though to that judgment is about the energy transition, which is what Western governments are attempting to do with the energy transition, and particularly with a net zero commitment by 2050, is something I think without, in fact, I'm sure, without historical parallel. The idea that the entire energy basis of our material way of life Mm. can be transformed utterly in a 30-year period, I should say, I don't think that it can be. (laughs) But the very fact that that is what we're aiming to do, I think that does mean that we're living in extraordinary times. Yeah. One final question, which is about a connecting theme, as it were. I noticed that in his review of your book, Tom Clark in Prospect wrote, though Thompson never puts it this way, the overarching theme is the fracture of the West. Is it? 
Yes and no. I mean, <laughs> first of all, I'm a bit sceptical about the idea of the West, partly because of the ways in which actually there are so many fractures through the countries and the interrelations between the countries that are taken to be the West through the entire period that I'm telling these histories. So back to, you know, the beginning of the 20th century. And if you just like one point, you say, OK, this West, look at what the Kaiser did during the Mm -hmm. the beginning of the First World War in encouraging the Ottoman Empire to declare a jihad against France and, yes. and Britain. I would say that I think that a significant part of the geopolitical story in the post-war years is about the inherent tensions in NATO and the relationship between NATO and the European Union. So that if we take NATO and the European Union as being the principal political associations of this thing that's called the West, whether correctly or incorrectly, I think that Tom would be right that my history is about how what are start off as certain kinds of fractures become more and more momentous to the point when it's quite mm. difficult to see how that they go back. The book is called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, Helen Thompson, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. It's really been a pleasure, Nick. I've very much enjoyed it. Next week, I'll be speaking to Michael Gordon about his book On the Fringe, where science meets pseudoscience. A byproduct of the high respect that science has culturally is a sort of confinement so that scientists can't publicly discuss uncertainty and dynamism. It's a real issue. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk where you can find all the episodes from this series and previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.